Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. Together, we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. We're talking about Roadhouse, The Hunt for Red October, Under Siege, Passenger 57, Speed, The Rock, Skyscraper, and nearly 165 more movies. These are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie, Die Hard... Ooh, very nice. Die Hard on a Blank is for you! Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Follow Die Hard on a Blank now on your podcast app of choice. Because this... uh might be the the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves otherwise we would be cows in the field Welcome to Cows in the Field. This is a show in which we discuss philosophical themes in popular films. My name is Justin. I'm Laura. And today we're celebrating Thanksgiving by talking about the first of three 1990s Tom Hanks-Meg Ryan rom-com collaborations, John Patrick Shanley's lovely little forgotten gem, Joe vs. the Volcano. Some people say a man is made out of mud, a poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bone A mind that's weak and a back that's strong You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt Say, Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store And we'd like to welcome to the show for the first time Chad Perman Chad is the founder and editor-in-chief of Brightwall Darkroom and a big-time defender of the movie we're about to discuss. Welcome to the show, Chad. Hello. Great, great, great to be here. Uh, we're very excited to have you. And I said this before off mic, and I'll just say it again now. Thank you very much for suggesting this movie because Laura and I had not seen it. Mm-mm. And putting it before our eyes and bringing it on this show means a lot because I think it's a really interesting and philosophical film. So thank you yeah, very much for that. Yeah. And no. also so much fun. So much fun. Yes. Just like delightful <laughs> from beginning to end. I'm all about fun <laughs> philosophy. Yes. Excellent. Uh, So, Chad, we want to start with kind of a like a softball slash massive question, which is, you know, I think a lot of people may either had not remember this movie or like us have never seen it. And so what's a reason you think people should watch or revisit the movie? Yeah, I'm. I feel like I'm in that dream where someone finally asks you the question you've been waiting for someone to ask you forever. (laughs) Uh, While at the same time, uh, I've been fine tuning this pitch for 25 years. So, um, I think it's an amazing movie. So that's, that's, if you know anything about me or, uh, bright wall, dark room, anything like that, I talk way too much about this movie. I'm pretty sure 60 to 70% of people think it's a bit, I, it's a hundred percent, not a bit. Um, I think it's a deeply fascinating philosophical film. I think every single time I watch it, it it's kind of a weird comparison point here. Um, 
though I did actually just listen to the to the episode you guys did last Christmas with Emily St. James. Um, my my favorite movie. Uh, this is hard to say because I've always said Joe vs. Volcano. My actual favorite movie is It's a Wonderful Life. Mm. And I do see some overlaps and points of comparison here. Not necessarily in the the plot or the structure, but in a lot of the kind of things it's getting at in the process. So, um, For sure. Yeah. So, I'm, I mean, I love my existential movies. Uh, I also love fun. <laughs> and I also like being really pretentious and not pretentious at all. Uh, so it, this this movie for me kind of puts it all together. I think for sure the first act is something almost any adult past about 25 can identify with pretty readily. Um, and then I think it gets deeper. Uh, you know, my background as therapist, there's a lot of stuff around, uh, it being kind of a PTSD movie, um, where, mm. you know, there's a very small little piece embedded in there, um, that I probably missed the first three or four times is Joe was a fireman. Um, and he basically, you know, pun sorry intended here he got burnt out uh but he also got traumatized a whole lot and just going through all of that left him in this position where he's just like i'm going to take this just dead end job i'm basically going to shut down all of my functioning in life um for me you know it's the oldest story in the world um uh playing right into myth and everything else like that but the idea that he takes kind of this hero's journey um to uh, recovery and catharsis and on transcendence and all those wonderful uh, things that I love about life. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, this, That's great. Th this, this pitch is expanding. But yes, I did not go to yeah. this at the video store when I was 20. Uh, I would just say it's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> lots of people you'll recognize in it. Um, but it's, it's just, I mean, if people give it a chance, that's all I ever really ask. Um, I know lots of people that don't like it and I've given this pitch to. And they're like, are we allowed to say that that didn't work for me? And I'm like, of course. Yes, absolutely. But for me, it works 100%. Um, it's worked since I was about 20. So uh, without giving away my exact age, it's been more than a couple decades uh, of this being at the top of the list. So That's really, I think that's a great pitch. There, you said a, a number of things that I think we could pick up on and go in those different directions. But just, just to give people a sense of like the movie and if you're, if you've, haven't seen it in a while and you're trying to remember what happens. So um, Tom Hanks plays this guy, Joe, and he, you know, he's working this crappy job. Where, where does he work? Oh, <laughs> American Panoscope Company. Yes. It's uh, the home of that's the rectal probe. Home of the rectal probe. Yes, that's right. So he makes he's a medical supply guy. But no, but he but he works as a. I don't know. He works as like an accountant in there or whatever. What's no, he he's do? excuse you. He's the, <laughs> he's the, <laughs> you he's the advertising watch librarian. Base, yeah. <laughs> advertising librarian. Okay. So he takes care of the catalogs. He can't order more catalogs, but he keeps track of how many catalogs <laughs> right. there are. He works a soulless <laughs> yes. white collar job. Uh, and he is told very early on in the movie that he is going to die in a few months. Because he has what? Laura likes this this motion. Brain cloud. Yes. <laughs> brain, cloud. brain cloud. It's yes. like between I didn't do it with my mic. The though. two <laughs> hemispheres of his of his brain, right? That's yes. like right Tom there. And this every time he says like, brain cloud, he does like a little wipe. Always over his head. a really really uh, funny like euphemistic kind of phrase. It meant nothing, but sadly and unfortunately, has uh, it's associated now with long COVID. So yeah, it is an actual like thing in the world that people right. have brain fog. So uh, yeah. at, the, at the time, it was complete nonsense. Though I will say, right. as someone who watched it in 1990, it was yes. made up. 
and it was wonderful. And it has no, importantly, to distinguish it from brain fog, I guess, which has uh, lots of lots of symptoms. Impact it has symptoms no of, symptoms. Yeah. No, right. it just yeah. So he's <laughs> yes. told that he's gonna die, and so then he decides. He realizes in that moment, right? Oh well, well my life. I'm wasting the last. I'm not gonna waste the last five months of my life working at this crappy job. So he quits his job. And then in a sort of series of strange events, he gets intri- he, he meets this guy played by Lloyd Bridges named Grainamore, who tells who basically hires him to jump into a volcano. Sorry, just realizing Gray no more, <laughs> like Gray no more, like your life will no longer oh, there's be gray. Lots of stuff. Oh, yeah. very good. Yes, very good. <laughs> gray no more. Um, yeah, and then that sort of sets him off on the, he accepts the the thing. So, he, you know, Graynamore basically gives him lots of money to do this. Uh, he gets to live the last few months of his, well, I guess a little bit of his life in a kind of you know, luxury. Uh, and then, yeah, and then he has to go jump in this volcano. And then the reason for that is kind of complicated. And the, the, one of the really Capitalism. nice things about this. Yes. <laughs> but one of the really nice things about this film directed by John Patrick Shanley, who's a writer, is it's just like really nicely written. It's really well written, and it, there's a real economy to the writing. In that, Graynamore is able to explain this incredibly convoluted plan that why he needs him to jump into this volcano in the middle of the Pacific. It, it has to do with like getting this special, you know, unobtainium like entity thing from the the locals, and they need a human sacrifice to appease the gods in their volcano. And it's ridiculous, but it's it's sort of conveyed so cleanly and so, but also zanily. Like the whole yes. movie is super zany. I mean, I think yes. the moment he shows up and just like waltzes <laughs> I mean, his hair, his, you know, mm-hmm. his hair, you know, he's got and he like just waltzes and he's like, your apartment is dingy. <laughs> Jump in a volcano. And you're just like, all right, like, I'm yeah, going that's, with and this that's, guy. And that's Tom Hanks's reaction is like, OK, <laughs> yeah, I'll yeah, sure. Why not? He just has yeah. this, this way of handling himself where you're just like, I'm going to follow that guy. Well, you also have that dichotomy of energy. like. <laughs> Robert Stack tells me I'm going to die, and then Lloyd Bridges tells me I can jump in a volcano and live like a king for the months before that. So and be a hero, yeah, yeah. and be a hero, yeah. Um, and it's so, okay. So that's just to give you a sense of the of the plot, dear listener. But here's the thing: one of the things you said, uh, Chad, at the beginning that I want to pick up on is that this is a deep movie, but it's not taking itself too seriously. And no, that I think is like that is a very nice, like a lot of like the deepest films are comedies. And they, the comedy allows the the more interesting philosophical insights to go down better, right? Because if the film doesn't do that, it's just going to be preaching at you. And there's like, in some ways, like nothing worse than a film just sitting there preaching at you. You know, that's like not an enjoyable thing. And most people are going to react very negatively to that. But this, the philosophy is imbued in, you know, in the plot and in the you know, it's like deeply part of the, you know, of what happens in the film. But also what happens in the film is really goofy. And everything, you know, all the characters are really zany. And we haven't yet mentioned it, but Meg Ryan plays three different <laughs> characters yeah. who might be in some way the same character in some sense. Uh, and, you know, and and that's, that's you know, and also the, uh, the imagery of this American Panoscope place is very you know heightened uh there's this kind of german expressionist imagery say, yeah. there yeah. yeah absolutely yeah i mean if you i've seen you know i've been down all possible joe versus volcano rabbit holes that exist so uh but there is a video on youtube from god 12 15 years ago um where they show side by side the opening of metropolis and then this mm-hmm. opening of mm. the 16 tons uh opening to you know basically zombies marching to work um and and yeah i mean there's a lot of stuff that's 
almost lifted directly. Uh, and, it's, and I should say also, the thing that always fascinates me as an adult watching it is the highly stylized, you know, uh, pretty clearly fake in some, you know, uh, settings. Like it's, it's, it doesn't try to hide that, but it also doesn't, it doesn't work against it. And I haven't really figured out how that yeah. happens. <laughs> so yeah. I have yeah. not cracked that particular code. It doesn't well, bother me in any way, but I'm like, yeah, yeah, this, obviously this is not, um, this yeah, is there's not like just a staginess to it. Yeah. Yes, it's stagey. stagey it's that's not, yeah. word. It's yeah. not intended to be realistic. No, and, not but at that's, all. But that helps it because, because then think about what other things are not realistic, but that tap into some of the deepest themes. Opera, for instance, right? And I think that makes it more, the theatricality allows us to appreciate what's happening on a metaphorical level or an allegorical level rather than on this kind of literal, like, there are interpretations of it, I think, where, and we'll talk some about these themes, where you could think of it as, you know, a critique of capitalism and that kind of thing. That's there. But I actually think the film encourages you to go deeper and more abstract. And mm-hmm. so, anyway. Yeah, it's almost too I, easy to, to read it that way as the yeah. capitalistic yeah. critique. But it is there. It's there, I think, yeah. Regarding its, like, staginess and its special look, I was also thinking a little bit about Bram Stoker's Dracula. Did you think about Ooh, that too, Justin? Yeah. Just in terms of its sort of, like... Uh, it, in camera tricks, matte painting, elaborate sets, like mm. it's sort of like a throwback aesthetic in some ways, right when we're like on the cusp of something where, you know, a, where the movies are going to take a totally different direction. But um, I read this interview he did with Matt Zoller sites, but he's like, talking about when they're this is the on, director. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Excuse me. Shanley had a, had an interview with uh, Matt Zoller sites at one point, And um, they talk about the ferry from Staten Island that he and Dee Dee stand on. And they're like standing on a hand, a home, a gimbal where two guys are just riding rocking it back and forth. Hmm. And then the black, the water is black trash bags (laughs) that they're just wiggling around. And then the city, they basically made like, they can cut little gels and let them individually for the buildings in the background. So it it does have this sort of like jewel box, like doll house, funny, like it has this very special feeling that I think does allow us to just go on this hero's journey with him as if we're like in a storybook. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And the opera thing, it's fascinating that you brought that. I mean, one of the in jokes we have on our podcast uh, is that we almost always end up talking about movies that somehow have an opera scene in them. <laughs> uh, mm. And our very first episode when, you know, uh, for the most part, we pick month to month to kind of fly by the seat of our pants. But the first one was intentional. And our very first podcast episode two years ago was on Moonstruck. And that was very intentional. Huge opera scene, John Patrick Shanley, um, not an accident. So you know, one difference between film and theater is that with film, you you have the opportunity to make things more realistic in the sense that you, know, you can actually film stuff. So if you want a shark, you can just film a shark, or you can <laughs> you know whatever. Uh, but you can't do that in the theater. So the theater, you need someone dressed in a shark suit coming on stage, and so and then people all know that's not real, and so then they they're encouraged to like the imagination is you know you have to fill that in with theater, right and so uh, this is a film that I think recalls more of that theatricality and because it, it's stepping away from um, the kind of filmic conventions that 
dominated right in the in the 80s and and to be fair in the 90s as well um and that's why the hearkening back to like german expressionism when film and theater were much more entwined when there wasn't yeah. that did you pick shark because of the, because the, of the fishing scene i'm still thinking oh, about uh, we're shark. gonna yes i love that fishing i'm <laughs> sorry you said shark and i just started giggling i, I, think, love I that sort scene. of got the point you said afterwards yeah. but i just started giggling when you said shark. oh that's one of my favorite scenes because it's just so silly <laughs> there is i mean i do like that the film has the rectal probe that it has the weird yeah. shark look you know uh that's another I, for me one of the charms of it and i don't know if that's a charm that comes on the third or fourth viewing but it sounds like for you guys it came across which is amazing totally um, no, totally yeah. i'm just now i'm at the point where i've you know i've seen it so many times but I, i'm just endlessly charmed from the second it starts i mean it's it's uh yeah. charming is a big word that comes through my mind but again very well where that not everybody feels that way so i mean i think i think it's fine of course to to not enjoy this movie but i also think like if you're not enjoying this movie i'm sort of like what do you want from cinema <laughs> you know i'm sort of like i don't <laughs> Thank know you. Like, That's, like what, my whole what else pitch that yeah. i gave you before we started that's a way better pitch like just if just you don't this, like this what do you like about cinema get out <laughs> i don't know i mean if the movie was more preachy i could see people being like ah it's text. Yeah. there it is going on it's preachy way again but like it's not it's no. it's 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 nice it's the and opposite. It, it, yeah it kind of allows you to come to these insights that it's laying out before you um on its own let me give one example of this so you mentioned in your um in in your uh, in your sort of pitch for the film, um, that it's it, you could think of it as a film about trauma, and that's because we learn when Joe is being diagnosed that he had previously worked in his like you know earlier part of his life as a fireman, and this is important because Grainamore uses that as a way of like you know bringing him back into the fold. He's like, look, you were a hero once, and and I think it's interesting that before Joe suffered from hypochondria right where he he felt like he was always sick and 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 all that he described his life like this he says in the beginning meaning i guess before i worked at this crappy job i was piss and vinegar nothing got me down and i think it's interesting that he it was during his time as a firefighter where he, as was described by Dr. Ellison, was constantly experiencing the imminent possibility of death, that his life was, in some sense, meaningful. He wasn't plagued by the existential crises that he is later at Paniscope. Um, and so the doctor, Ellison, just thinks that, well, what happened is that, like, you know, you he you, you spent so long as a firefighter and, and you know, these brushes with death led you to constantly be worrying about dying and that's why you're hypochondriac but i actually read the doctors i think the doctor's diagnosis is in some ways accurate but it's not accurate for the reasons he thinks it is so i think he's right that it was the transition from firefighter to uh you know to whatever office worker that led to his existential crisis which is the source of his hypochondria um, but I think it's it in part was the lack of the experiencing the imminent possibility of death on a daily or weekly basis that is now what's led to this kind of stasis, you know. Um, and so I feel like he's it's it's not as if he's was worried about dying and that's what led him to be a hypochondriac. It's that now he's not worried about dying and that's what's led him to be a hypochondriac. And the weird medicine is actually to reintroduce 
the possibility of death yes. and well, finitude in his Becker, life, which yeah. <laughs> right, which brings back his meaning and his, you know, and his joie de vivre, so to speak. So I'm curious what you what you thought about that because I I agree there is also a kind of trauma thing going on, although it it feels to me very off stage, and yeah, so that's why I, I don't want to give anyone the it. idea that this is like some. <laughs> Like harrowing traumatic journey. Like there's none of that in the yeah. movie. It doesn't yeah. flash back to him like rescuing right. kids from fires or anything like that. Yeah. Right. Um, what you see is, you know, uh, what often shows up in a therapist's office. You, you see the after effects. You see a person right. that is a shell of a person, uh, a person that has, you know, there's, there's some Virginia Woolf line here that I'm going to totally butcher, but actually it might be George Eliot, but it's, it's one of those people uh, that I love. You basically, you can't shut off one part of your emotions without shutting down all of them. So that's, uh, that's pretty uh-huh. much the deal that he's making is, Hey, I can't handle stuff. So I'm shutting it all down. And that's what you see when, you know, when you see that first scene, which again is a comedic scene that I think works on a, on a comedic level at, at like high, high levels. Um, which, you know, uh, the, the, the one, the, the famous line of like, you know, I know you can do the job, but you know, whatever, like that, that Dan Hedaya thing. Oh, yeah, um, Hedaya. I mean that, that whole, every, uh, I could talk for five hours about just that, that opening like 20 minutes because it's such a perfect encapsulation of someone who is just literally like at the end of their line career wise, there's no, you know, climbing the corporate ladder here for, for, uh, for Joe Banks. Um, he, kind of has a crush on this secretary, uh, Dee Dee, played by Meg Ryan, um, who I actually heard last night in a Meg Ryan interview from from the time the movie was released. She said she modeled Dee Dee on her own dog. <laughs> so she's like, that was, uh, you know, my very loving but not so bright dog. And then it shows various <laughs> clips and you just start laughing. But yeah, so he's got this, you know, crush. It's not like he's got a crush on like, you know, some woman who's way out of his league. He's got a crush on the secretary in the office. Uh, he's got the boss from hell who... God, yes. Uh, but it's funny. That's the part I keep wanting. I don't want to lose that thread. It's hilarious, but it's also so sad and tragic when you realize what the comedy's hiding there, which is like where Joe's at. Um, right. And maybe, his maybe, little, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, I was thinking maybe maybe where the trauma is is what's, I think, the interesting thing. So the the doctor thinks the trauma it was in the experience of the confrontation with death. But in fact, I think the trauma uh, is the monotony of the post-firefighter job that he's in. So so the trauma is just experiencing an unending, incessant life of sameness. And and because he's limited in so much himself, I mean, through the choices he's made, through, you know, the hypochondria is kind of a result of maybe some of his situation, but everything else there is like he purposely just winnowed his life down to this little job in this little office uh where he doesn't even have the power like you know you were saying to order the magazines he can just uh let people know when the magazines need to be ordered or whatever it is um he but the the thing i love there too i mean it's got it's one of my favorite things i know i talked about it in that essay uh but he's got his little like survival kit of stuff. So he's got his little magic lamp, you know, the, the lamp that the guy's like, shut that, shut that off to get that lamp out of here. Uh, I love lamp, but he's got the lamp there and, you know, and he's got uh, Robinson Crusoe. I mean, again, Shanley, I love him. Uh, I still love him. He is a wackadoodle guy out on whatever social media he decides to be on that day where he just kind of, he loves words so much that uh, it's one of those people that's just like, I just love that there are people like him in the world still. Um, 
but he he puts so much into there and so much that you can read. So I always call it kind of call it his survival kit where he has his ukulele, uh, a copy of Robinson Crusoe and the lamp. And all of those things come back throughout the movie, not literally, but figuratively or symbolically or, you know, um, so there's a high level of intelligence going on here, which I know that nobody thinks of when they think of Joe versus the volcano. Um, but he's planting little seeds all over the place, philosophically, metaphorically, guideposting, sign. I mean, it's, I think it's a really, really smart screenplay. Um, I think that's totally right. I mean, so the other aspect of the trauma or depression or existential malaise that I think Joe is facing which isn't overtly commented on, but it is totally present, is that I think Joe is a deeply lonely character when we first meet him. So he, as we learn, has no family. He seems to have no friends. And, and, we, and one of the reasons we, we know this is that in that once he's given the money by Granamore, um, he has this nice day on the town and he gets to share it with a bunch of strangers. He shares it with the driver and he shares it with the guy who helps him uh, get the trunks and the all The luggage that. guy. My favorite the luggage, luggage guy. guy. Yeah. Most favorite Everyone guy. loves luggage um, guy. Yeah. He's yeah. Carol Kane for like two seconds. Yeah. The, yeah, the, the hairdresser and all that. But he shares <laughs> these moments but with strangers. And then at the end of the night, pointedly, he goes and gets a drink alone and he goes to bed alone. And this is... Us, you know, in principle, his last night in New York, he may never come back. I mean, for all he knows, he's never coming back to New York. He has no one to see or to say goodbye to. Like, that is really, I mean, that's that's got to be a really tough and difficult and depressing existence where, you know, you have a dead-end job, but not only that, you, you don't have anyone to commiserate, right, about this job with. I mean, he tries to form a kind of common bond with Dee Dee, but she ends up, you know, rebuffing him when she finds out that he's about to die. Um, and <laughs> That's so, always a buzzkill. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah. And so I do think like, you know, it is, we've talked a little bit about this at, at various points on this podcast about loneliness and about in particular, like male loneliness um, uh, and, and the difficulties of finding male friendships in, you know, in the modern world in like post-college world in, in the U S and especially in metropolitan areas. Um, and how a lot of your friendships and stuff comes from, you know, your familial bonds, like your spouse and your kids and that kind of thing. And, and he has none of that. And so I think this is a really tough situation to be in. And, and that's part of, I think, the diagnosis of his of his trauma or slash, you know, malaise. Well, and I think, too, I mean, this is extrapolating. This is not anywhere in the movie, but the the few firemen that I know in my in my real life um, that is a deeply fraternal like job. Like you right. live with those people, you are embedded. So to walk away from that is not just walking away from the the trauma. It's also walking away from from the adrenaline, from the identity of yourself as you know. If anyone hears that you're a fireman, it's just instant kind of respect. You know, people people like firemen. They're not problematic in any way that I'm aware of. Um, and also, yeah, they 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 basically. I mean, it's maybe not quite the military, but it's in terms of that, that, that brotherhood, uh, and sisterhood that they experience as, I mean, they, they sit around waiting for there to be chaotic disasters altogether. And then they rush out and go solve them. And then they come back and kind of process their trauma in that weird guy way where they really, they just talk about everything else, you know? Uh, but so he lost all that. And I think that's a really important piece too, in the loneliness. Um, and I don't think he knows how to function, you know, in society. <laughs> um, and I don't, 
but you know, and, and, and what I really kind of, when I connected with the movie the most, it was more around like, Oh, it's not just that he doesn't know how to do it. It's also like he, he doesn't have any desire to do it. There's no, there's no life force. There's no vitality there, uh, anywhere in him, those, those first 20 minutes. And that's why for me, you know, as he goes on this journey, um, and all those people uh, pick, you know, pick, pick the website you want to map it to because they'll give you different people. But all these people are basically like these guides on his journey. You know, the 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 luggage guy. All of them are giving these little aphorisms and these little like deep slash funny slash you could also just pass right by and not even notice that something just happened scenes. Um, but there's one thing that Aussie Davis, uh, the guy, the, the limo driver is taking him to all these places, uh, you know, and they're doing there's some version of this where they go off and have a buddy comedy together, but he makes it so clear. Like right when you think like, Oh look, he's got this friend who's going to accompany him. And he asks him to dinner and he's like, no, I got it. I got my own family. <laughs> um, and then he says that line, which is, you know, perfect, which is like, there's, there's some doors a man's got to walk through alone. Um, which sets up this whole thing for like, okay, yes, you got to go, you got to go on your hero's journey now. You know, I, I can take you this far, but I'm not the one who's going to, Right on That's the right. raft with you, you know. Yeah, Go. I wonder if you'd want to have dinner with me tonight. I can't do that. I Go. got the wife and kids at the end of the day, you know? Yeah. Everything's at check-in when you're ready, sir. Listen. Haven't you got anybody? No. But there are certain times in your life when I guess you're not supposed to have anyone, you know? Certain doors you're gonna go through alone. You're gonna be all right. So I think there are different dimensions. I think he has, I'm just gonna reiterate what we just talked about, but then I'm gonna add one more thing. So there's one which is a kind of lingering trauma from his past. There's the trauma or malaise, existential malaise of his job. There's the loneliness and not having any human connections. Um, but I also think there's a, he wants to know who he is and doesn't know who he is. Like it's this kind of un, he doesn't know himself. And and this is reflected in a couple of ways. So one is when he's at the restaurant with Didi, he's like, who am I? That's the real question, isn't it? Who, who am I? Who are you? What other questions are there? What other questions are there? Really? If you, you want to understand the universe, embrace the universe. The, the door to the universe is you. Me? You, me. You are really intense. Am I? <laughs> which is one of my favorite lines of the whole movie um but i so there's that part but yes. then there's also in the subsequent um middle act where he meets all those guys as you talked about ossie davis and so on each one of those people knows exactly who they are ossie davis is like my view is the clothes make the man and that other guy the luggage guy is like luggage is the most important thing and all the Meg Ryan characters. Which also pays off at the end of, of the movie. Life. Yeah, the single preoccupation of my life. Exactly. Yes. And, and, and you know, and, and when he meets um, Angelica, the second Meg Ryan character. Yes. Right? Like she, 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 both her and Patricia, in some ways, like, know who they are. And they're not, like, happy with who they are. But they sort of know who they are. They know the choices they've made and the mistakes that they've made. And they're processing that in terms of their relationship to their father. Um, and so it's like he he meets all these people who have like who are fully defined people who understand themselves. And he is a kind of blank slate who doesn't understand himself until the end of the movie. So one of the like journeys is like he has to go through this kind of process of self-realization. And he you get there a little bit when he get when he's on the boat and he's just like, 
And I've been doing some soul searching lately, been asking myself some pretty tough questions. You know what I found out? I have no interest in myself. I start thinking about myself, I get bored out of my mind. <laughs> Which, a uh, God, that works even better in 2023. But um, just the idea of like, hey, the, the way through life is not to think about yourself 24-7. It's actually so counterintuitive to how a yeah. human being can be content or find meaning or purpose in life. Um, and again, it's just a little dropped in line in the middle of a, a otherwise kind of funny, humorous restaurant scene. Totally. That having, so. yeah. yeah, totally. No preaching, um, but, but the message is no, <laughs> exactly, exactly. No preaching. Um, so, okay. So yeah. And then you mentioned, you were mentioning this as I was, as I was talking, I want to highlight it. Yeah. So in that middle act, which is the, Probably, probably like the most fun in some ways part of the movie because he gets to go around spending all the money. It's like and the Pretty Woman montage. No, I was yeah. going like to say get a little bit more. Pretty Woman yeah. came out three weeks after this movie, and oh, wait, really? Yes, yeah. <laughs> That's where we were at in the culture. Yes, and the, her montage is way different. <laughs> we just love to watch people get like a gold no. credit card and spend it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like the stuff he buys, it's when he's buying it. To it yeah. Well, yes. Well, but when he's buying it, <laughs> you're like, not know that he this is not. all, this is all stupid stuff. It, it, first of all, like when he goes to Hamaker Schlemmer, I'm just sitting we there both like, start oh, you're just like, you're like, he's going to the most frivolous, stupid yeah. store. <laughs> and he doesn't have that much to pack into luggage. I mean, he just, like, yeah, it's not, he's got to yeah. fill those, he's got to get boxes. that lamp and that book and that ukulele, but yeah. Yeah. And the violin, what is it? Violin bar. <laughs> violin bar. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. He's got the radio and the umbrella. He's, yeah. Yeah. And then his little putt putt set. And that, yes, and the mini golf set. <laughs> That's oh, right. yes, I did forget uh, about that. <laughs> which all come back, of course, as we know, when he shipwrecked to provide some degree of comfort that sustains him in this, you know, in this moment when of, of you know, what would be, I think, a moment of true abject terror, but actually weirdly is, I think, one of the moments of the film where Joe is actually the most content with his life, which which is really kind of intriguing because... He, you know, he spent like the, the first half of the film being like, I don't know who I am. I hate life. Like, I don't have anything to live for. And then th at the moment when he's basically floating on these these four trunks, I mean, if you really think about it, the movie, again, it's so silly and lighthearted. It doesn't draw that much attention to this. But if you really think about what it would be like to be shipwrecked, <laughs> Floating yes. in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Oh, I've thought about it. <laughs> right? It would be absolutely horrifying with Terrifying. the prospect that you like may never be I can come up with. found. And he seems, I mean, I really do think he seems, I mean, of course, he gets dehydrated eventually. But he, in, during that sequence, he seems Oh, that's so, when he's dancing. Yeah. He's dancing. He's so happy. He's shaving. Like, he's living, like, the kind of life that we all would, in some sense, like, the good life. He's living in a yeah. version of the good life. Away on from this the things raft. of man. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> He's got a couple things of man. He's got a couple things know. of man, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but he is just he is he's basically again facing down imminent death and he's perfectly. His timeline just keeps getting shorter. Yeah. Thinks he has five months and then he thinks he has like two weeks before he gets to the volcano, and now he's like, okay, tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. he's also trading that for worse death. He's like, I got five months to live, but painless, but like no symptoms. Now I'm going to shorten it up and then I'm going to have a pretty, you know, 
go out in a blaze of glory, but that probably doesn't feel good to be on a volcano. And then like by no choice of its own, but now he's floating in the, on the ocean and he's like, I don't know, three days dehydration shark. I know. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But this leads to, and I know this is your favorite scene of the whole film. um, His encounter with the, with the moon. When did it crystallize that this scene was really important? Yeah. I mean, that was, that was my portal. Um, And you know, it still works again a couple decades later. Um, I keep I keep waiting for the moment, and it will be a very sad moment if it ever happens when that scene doesn't give me chills and doesn't work for me. Um, I I don't think I can get tired of it. Uh, I, I am careful not to watch it out of context too often. I think you do need the movie. Um, you can certainly get a little hit of, or maybe a whiff of some of it if you just watch the YouTube clip of the scene. But you really have to watch the movie to get to the point where he's at because he's so broken down and he's so. Uh, but not in a bad way necessarily. I mean, he's, he's, he's broken down to the things that actually matter, which is, you know, obviously a, a huge storytelling kind of thing throughout the history of humankind is like, Hey, you kind of got to lose everything and, uh, and, and, and really just realize how amazing everything is. If you can get to that kind of, if you can hold those tensions, uh, together, I think that that's, that's kind of the secret of life. Um, never losing the awe. You know, and, and, and that's when he, I think he becomes curious once he gets his diagnosis. I think he becomes open-minded. I think he has purpose and meaning, which is going to galvanize a lot of people's kind of internal resources. Um, but what I love about it, and I think this comes from Shanley, I don't, I don't know him, but my guess is based on how I've, how I've seen him be over the years, uh, that there's just a lot of Shanley in this character and that what he's doing there is just kind of opening up to the universe and, trusting that the universe in some way is this amazing place that he's kind of for the first, I mean, it's almost like this childlike view. Like we lose that. And I maybe wrote about that. I don't, I mean, I wrote that like 10 years ago. So if it's in there, then I'm sorry if I'm paraphrasing myself, but, but the idea, that's okay. (laughs) The idea that, um, the secret to things is not, you know, getting a job and going to the office every day, all that kind of stuff that it's actually like, Oh my God, a single leaf is amazing, you know, let alone the freaking moon that we all look at every night and think almost nothing about. Um, or tonight we might be mad that it showed up earlier because it's daylight savings time. But the point is like, it's amazing that there's a moon. <laughs> it's an amazing, I mean, I literally was thinking this the other day, not related to the movie, but just um, thinking of, you know, a very obvious thought. It probably sounds stupid out loud, but I was like, that's the same moon that Shakespeare looked at. That's the same moon that Homer looked at, you know, like, it's it's amazing that that just hangs there and it's the same thing and it's accessible to us all the time. And for the most part, it becomes a backdrop in every one of our lives. Even if we set an intention to pay purposeful attention to how amazing the moon is, we can only keep that up for a few days, which is not possible. So what I love about this scene is he's about to die. (laughs) I mean, he doesn't, you know, spoiler alert. But he Um, could, he very well could. could. Yes, he is dehydrated. So there is is that... uh, intensity that you only get when you're really just kind of super dehydrated or super high and he's sitting there (laughs) and you know we haven't mentioned even that possibly this woman that he's fallen in love with might not be okay she's passed out there um so he's all alone and she's technically there but who knows what's going on with her if she'll come back he's feeding her those little sips of water and all that cute stuff um but then He's sitting there at the at kind of the worst moment uh, 
where he's like, okay, yeah, maybe my life ends here on this, you know, luggage raft that I'm on. Um, and then the moon starts and, you know, there's a, it's highly stylized. There's no way that that's a real moon or that any of this is real. Um, but I mean, it's just the line that he says. And I, and I've, I think about that line all the time in the last 20 years. Um, it's not, thank you for my life, which I love, 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 love. Uh, but it's the, it's the part where he can't even finish the sentence where he said, I, for, I forgot how big. And he stops and I get like, I'm tearing up thinking about it. It's like, I forgot how big, like, this is amazing. <laughs> um, so I don't know if I've actually answered any of the question you were asking, but no, this is that's great. why it does it for me is uh, I, I could, that scene just, just works every single time and connects me with a part of myself that I like to remember exists way more often than I tend to. So. Dear God. Whose name I do not know. Thank you for my life. I forgot how big. Thank you. Thank you for Totally. So I want to connect what you're saying, Chad, I think as you're tapping into something um, several philosophers have tapped into. So just to draw on other connections (laughs) here, um, what I think the movie is doing here is I think it's, it's a really powerful and maybe even one of the like most poignant depictions of, of Kant's notion of the sublime. This is this so this is this idea that and it, again it's 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 it arises out of a tension. So it was interesting that you talked about tension that this being a real a, a moment of tension but also like overwhelming joy. And that's the so what Kant says is I'll give you two quotes from Kant. So this is from the Critique oh, of Judgment. I, I busted out my copy <laughs> of the Critique of Judgment for this episode. Okay, so one quote is this so th- this notion of sublime obviously predates Kant. It's, it's, a, it's a common notion that, that various philosophers, especially working in the philosophy of art, were trying to, you know, give a kind of content to. Um, but Kant thinks it's this. So he says, two quotes here, that is sublime in comparison with which everything else is small. So that's the first idea, that the sublime is something awe-inspiring. So it has to be big, it has to be somehow, you know, overwhelming in this way. So this moon is is huge. He even comments on how big, dot, dot, dot. We don't know what he's referring to. But um, he's, the, other, the second quote is, that is sublime, which even to be able to think of demonstrates a faculty of mind that surpasses every measure of the senses. So what Kant means here is, that it, it, roughly for him, it's the, feel, the sublime is the feeling of being overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of something, but in a way that's pleasurable because it reminds you that you can up- apprehend something so great because of the power of your own intellect. It's this thing which is way bigger than you, so you're like, I'm so small, but at the same time, I'm big too because I'm able to appreciate it. Right there's this like the expanse of my mind that's able to grok this massive thing, and that I think is a way of putting it. I mean, it's a different spin on than what you said, but it's in the same ballpark. I think that like this this idea of like pay attention to these things because they are reminders of the kind of you know marvelousness of our own existence, of how wonderful and strange and 
unique and powerful our own existence is. Um, and, and that we're and able I to think, observe it. <laughs> yeah, that we can observe it is that amazing thing of yeah. us that like is distinctive of us. Like, you know, I'm, you know, I love my cats, but the cats <laughs> cannot appreciate the sublime, right? And that neither, you. you know, and neither can the moon. I mean, right? I, neither I heard can you guys the moon. have a cat tree, so. <laughs> well, yeah, the cats. Look, they have never appreciated. I'll tell you what the cats now. appreciate. I think food. the cat might have thought I. I didn't realize how big this cat tree was. Yeah, yeah. I never knew how uh, big. <laughs> so it, yeah. Anyway, I. But I just. I think there are very few movies. I think that really, when I was thinking about this, I was like, what other movies do the sublime well? And I think this is just like a, per, you know, some ways perfect distillation of the idea, and um, and. You know, it is really powerful, and it, and it's something we all have a familiarity with because we all know that feeling of being like, oh yeah, now I can attend to this thing which was otherwise commonplace, right? It's just like a mountain, or it's just like a hill, or whatever. But then, but you attend to it in a way which is like, I don't know, like it it well, simultaneously that whole, yeah, is yeah, love, diminishes you, know? you and makes you big, um, yeah. which is cool. Yeah, and I think I mean my my head just kind of bounces in about a hundred different areas the, listening to you talk to the philosophies of stuff. But it, I mean, is, isn't there a school of thought that among some people that they think that part of the whole point of the universe is learning to be conscious of itself? Like, is that resonating at all? Like, yeah, or, like can I, okay. So the other person that I think this the other philosopher that I think this film is I would guess Shanley has read Heidegger, but Heidegger is a big part of this film, I think. And, and one of Heidegger's ideas we'll take is, your word for it. Jeff. Well, I'll tell you, uh, we'll get to it in a second, but, <laughs> but I, one of Heidegger's ideas is, is this very thing of like what, what is distinctive about us as human beings is that we are these like self-reflexive beings who sort of recognize our own being. And for Heidegger, this is, th there's a paradox at the core of this, which is that part of our being is that we are essentially finite and bounded. So we are essentially, we are recognizing of our own death. We know that like inevitably we are going to die. And that is a kind of, ref, you know, reflexive consciousness that, um, that, you know, rocks don't have. And even like monkeys don't have, you know, but like, um, and that, that is something that's distinctive about, you know, human consciousness that we have this kind of, ability to reflect on our own existence. Um, you know, that's an idea that's like, you know, predates Heidegger, but Heidegger's spin on it is that is that infinitude is the essential feature of being. So that's why his his big Did you say finitude or infinitude? Finitude. finitude that, okay. that we're bounded entities. So um, you know, the idea is that I mean, sorry, that's why his big book was Being in Time. Um, that like it will end. <laughs> um and and so you know, anyway, but I, but the, the, the reason why this is related to the film is that um, death hangs over Joe's head, right? Like in, in a very literal way. And it's only through the kind of conscious affirmation, that's such a big Heideggerian word of death, um, this idea that like he, he doesn't just see that he's going to die, but he goes out to meet death. Right on the mm -hmm. precipice of the volcano, he's. I think it's really telling that he's given this choice. Um, he doesn't have to jump. In fact, he's given a lot of reason not to jump. He's just fallen in love with Patricia. She, right? They they could, you know, they, it's not that he at that point he thinks he's going to die maybe in a few weeks, but he could still have 
three weeks with Patricia, which is better than zero weeks with Patricia with a woman he loves. And yet he jumps. And there is this kind of steadfast, like, you know, acceptance, not just acceptance, but like, you know, going to greet death. And he's got to do what he's got to do. I know. But this is like so, I don't really buy into this Heideggerian idea, but it, it is so essential to Heidegger's philosophy that like that to him is like, that's like the liberatory mood. That's how you attain true authentic being. By greeting death? Yes. And so just to okay. give you an idea of this, I, I read this thing, this is kind of funny. So it, later on in his life, in a, in a lecture, someone asked Heidegger how we might orient ourselves to an authentic disposition towards death. And here's what Heidegger said. We should simply aim to spend more time in graveyards. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that's... that's they didn't have I mean, any volcanoes in Germany. <laughs> no. But I mean, that, that advice is not... Uh, I feel like, besides Heidegger, that that's... I mean, that's equitable... Basically, that familiarity with death. I mean, it, once you accept that they, you know the, the that you're finite. Once you accept that everything you attach to is one day going to go away, and also you yourself are going to go away. That's when you can be free. You know that, yeah. that this idea mm -hmm. that like all this other stuff is just stuff that gets in the way. Um, yeah. And I'm you know uh, as a as a therapist again was the reason I read it. But one of one of my favorite books uh, I I read about every ten years because if I read it more than that I. It'd be a bit much, but is the denial of death uh, by Ernst right. Becker? I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's the same. I mean, it's the same stuff. He he just more. It wasn't really his idea as much as it was a compilation of all the different people that have thought that through. You know, the centuries. It's it's something that philosophers and uh, Stoics and other things just eventually always come to is you have to accept the fact that you're going to die, and once you do that, there is a liberation to that. Uh, but you have to really do it, and I think. Um, so for me, it gets bound up with that idea. And then the other thing, which I love, um, the word is a little bit, uh, has some baggage to it because it's got religious in it. But uh, William James is a varieties of religious experience. Um, mm -hmm. That's, I mean, that's the moon scene, right? <laughs> that's, uh, he just talks about all this spiritual ecstasy that people experience. But when he looks into it, since he's William James and he's, you know, being as critical as you are allowed to be in public and, and that time of religion, um, He's basically saying like, yeah, all these experiences, you can't really explain them. And we do put this word called religion or God around some of them. But really, it's just the, you know, the transcendent or the cathartic and that, that getting in touch with that uh, in whatever way it happens, whether you frame that as God came to me in a vision or, you know, um, I, I saw a moon on a raft in a, in a, you know, John Patrick Shanley movie, whatever it is. Um, it's it's that same realization. Though. Yeah, there are two sides. So so the Heideggerian notion is like, it's totally inward. It's supposed to be like, you recognize the finitude of your own death that allows you to authentically live or the finitude of your own life that allows you to authentically live. But then the thing that you said that I think is really cool, Chad, is that actually, if you think of this in terms of transcendence, what is transcendence, but that actually, you know, connecting or, or leaving or transcending your own self, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that you said about the moon that I thought was really powerful and is is not reflected in what Heidegger is thinking about and potentially not really even reflected with what Kant's thinking about, but is a, a different insight altogether um, and, you know, a, a, a really powerful one, is that part of what is what he's potentially seeing in the moon is a connection to not just nature, but to the rest of humanity. <laughs> and what you put the way you put it as like it's the same moon Shakespeare saw and it's the same moon that right like Caesar saw or whatever and like you're like yeah that is so powerful to feel like yes it's this is bigger than me I'm part of this massive story that is humanity but 
isn't that cool that I'm connected to all these people? Yeah. And that's and that's the thing he's missing at the beginning of the movie. He has no connections. And then to go from that to being like, no, actually, in a weird way, I'm connected to everyone who's ever lived. And that's kind of cool. And I experienced that entirely by myself on this raft looking at this movie. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And again, in a 1990 Meg Ryan Tom Hanks romantic comedy. So. This movie is freaking deep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, just glad that I've got someone else to talk about it with. <laughs> no, this is good stuff. Uh, should we should we just like do a quick sidebar on Meg Ryan playing three different characters? There's Hell gotta, yes. There's got to be some philosophy in there, yeah. I don't so, know. There could be, yeah. but I just want to talk about She's which great. one's your favorite. All right, yeah, let's ask this. Let's just start with the let's start I mean, with the hard question. Yeah. Who's your favorite of the three? <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's a hard question at all. Uh, no. Yeah. Okay. No. I mean, for me, it's Patricia because she's okay. She's a seeker, you know, and Joe's a seeker, and uh, she's she rejects again. There is a quite a whole lot of uh, rejecting of capitalism in there, but she tried really, really hard to get out of capitalism, you know, mm -hmm. with her rich, mm -hmm. powerful father, obviously. He tricks slashes, manipulates her into actually rejoining all of this life that she tried to get away from um, in the service of him making even more money from this bizarro product on this island that, you know, so there's this whole, there's that whole thread. But what I love, I mean, again, it's, it's some of the lines and this is not Meg Ryan that I think she delivers them beautifully because there is a version of almost every line in this movie where. It just doesn't work, and it's just a disaster of a movie. But that line about, you know, my father says there's only a few people that are truly alive, and they live mm -hmm. every moment in total constant amazement. Like, that's also a thought that goes through my head all the time. Like, that's an option in life. Uh, we could choose that. It's really, really hard to hold to if for more than about 10, 15 minutes of time. Um, but I do think, you know, for what it's worth, that uh, where you guys are at in life, it's a lot easier to access to – sorry – it's a lot easier to access that with a four-year-old in the house, you know? Absolutely. Because everything is amazing to a four-year-old when they're in a decent mood. Um, yeah, everything is yeah. amazing or terrible. Yeah. We went raspberry picking and our kid <laughs> kept going, this is the best day it of is. my life. It is. I mean, he got to go pick raspberries. <laughs> like, imagine getting to do that for the first time. Like, that, that we're so jaded, like, you know, whatever ages you guys are and whatever age I am. Uh, yeah, like going to pick raspberries, like I was like, well, I could be, uh, got to drive out there and there might be traffic. Yeah, and Justin's I, like, do you know this is at a grocery stuff. store? Why oh, am I? No, I mean, my view on raspberry picking this? is like, I'm not going to pay someone to do <laughs> so, labor. To do labor. Like to do their labor for Justin's them. just like <laughs> grimacing in the background. He's like, do you know these bushes of prickly? Yeah. Why are these prickly? Yeah. Like, I got like, it. I'm having and, an And God, don't get the raspberries in the car because they stain like crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's just all this stuff. Yeah. And we pay we paid fourteen dollars for these raspberries. Oh no, you're gonna tell And then them. we left them in the Airbnb. We didn't even them. eat them. I ate many of and them. If, but no, they were. You know, if your child ever remembers any of it, uh, they'll remember that it was awesome that they got to do it, and they'll remember the, that just the feeling they had with you. You guys will remember the details, but again, yeah, the details are what bog us down, and I think that's what Joe versus Volcano gets at a lot. Is uh, there is this view of the world where. Again, you have to set an intention. Uh, it helps if you've maybe been broken down completely in a hypochondriac for years. And finally, someone <laughs> just shows up who, you know, is uh, Robert Stack again, which that the gravitas of him. It says, yeah, you're going to die. And you're right about all this stuff. And it's this mysterious thing. And um, 
and then and then you're free and then you get to like re-experience everything you know and 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 i think actual figure you know uh, it's a weird comparison here but just where my brain grabbed first but like you know steve jobs when he found out he was going to die became a very different human being than steve jobs was up until that point uh and that's a you know it's a commonplace thing when when someone gets that kind of news um there's lots of different ways to take it it's obviously not the way everybody takes it but there is an aspect of you know you really everything else goes away that's not important and you really can see things much clearer which i think joe does yeah i mean that's the heideggerian idea and but the like but the but right because it is like once you authentically embrace death that is you sort of actually really do embrace that you're gonna die because we all know we're gonna die yeah. nobody here is under the misapprehension <laughs> that we're not well, gonna we die really hard to not think about that though <laughs> yeah but that's the thing is, is yeah. we try to not sort of see it head on right so that's that's heidegger's idea but anyway but but i i yeah i do agree that it does it for whatever reason it like crystallizes something so he's right about something i i'm somewhat resistant to it for other reasons which we may not get into but i wanted to ask so <laughs> i Patricia, think we have three different faves Patricia, I, I know Sorry, we, have three we different definitely did not answer the meg ryan stuff <laughs> no you did you did <laughs> you Patricia, did yours Patricia, is Patricia. Laura. Okay, the seeker. well yeah laura I what's mean, yours what's yours angelica <laughs> the Fliberty Gibbet. The Fliberty Gibbet. I'm a Fliberty Gibbet. Um, sure. Her accent. I would say she look. makes me laugh the most by far. Yeah. Oh my! Her poetry. The poetry is my, one of my Would favorite you like scenes. to hear it again? <laughs> um, it's so good. Would you like to hear one of my poems? Sure. Long ago, the delicate tangles of his hair covered the emptiness of my hands. Would you like to hear it again? Okay. And then she does it and they let it play out for the whole second time. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, yeah. Angelica all the way. <laughs> yes. I'm a DD all the way. Oh, you love DD. I love Dee Dee. I know. <laughs> well, I think she ha she has my favorite line. Me? Uh and yeah, I think like uh I don't know. I I maybe I maybe I'm secretly a dog person. I don't know. But yeah, maybe knowing that she modeled her character after her dog, but uh, Well, I was yeah. thinking about like why three Meg Ryan's and and we mentioned so in you called it his survival kit, his his essentials, and his yeah. and his desk. Oh, there's three things. Ukulele. Yeah. He's got ukulele. He's got ukulele. Robin Crusoe, The Odyssey. Which oh, I forgot. Yes, the obvious. Yeah, right. and Romeo, Romeo and Juliet. And, Juliet. Yeah. and um, at first, I was thinking like the three women are like he keeps he keeps basically meet encountering the same woman in different forms because he keeps not quite getting it right. Like he keeps, the world is giving him another chance, giving him another chance. But now I think like that's not totally right too, because it's not also that his timing is wrong or that he doesn't push hard enough or go for it or go for the kiss. It's also that these women are all in different places in their lives and struggling with their own demons and their own anxieties. And they're not always in a place to meet him. Like he lays it all out with Gigi and she runs away from him because she's too scared of what he, of the enormity of what he's dealing with. And he's too intense for her. And similarly, Angelica is, 
it's, she's sort of like chosen her life. She knows she's white. Her eyes are wide open about where she's at, but she's depressed. Yeah, she's and not. She doesn't willing, want to engage. Yeah, she's not willing to hear any kind of pushback on whatever. No. Yeah, no, she's not there. And like, it's only until he meets another seeker, as yeah. you say, who's in the right moment. Right, they're, they're star-crossed lovers yeah. again and again until until they are no longer star-crossed, mm. and they and they can like go on this journey together. But like there are, it's as if I I like that 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 throughout the throughout the universe there are there is the the Meg Ryan character who's also trying to like find her way and eventually get you know in form of Patricia finds Joe just at the right time. It's the reason, yeah. I I think it's 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 it plays on so many levels because she, you know it gives Meg Ryan a, like a. a you know, showcase, right? She gets to be not just the manic pixie dream girl or whatever, but she gets to just be different shades of these, of these, you know, rom-com women. Um, but it's also like, I don't know if it was like this for, for, for you, Chad, but I sort of feel like they kind of represent different women you've dated in your yeah. life. I mean, <laughs> you know, like, kind of, I, you know yeah. like you think back on it and you're like, oh yeah, I kind of, I dated a DD once and then I, yeah. did you date an Angelica? Angelica? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Those, no. those people are exciting. Damn it, I'm not your Angelica. I'm <laughs> no. so upset about this. No, you're obviously my Patricia. We ended up together. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but you know, I don't know. I just feel like that's kind of, you know, like I feel like sh like Shanley's kind of drawing on maybe like different oh big archetypes yeah. too yeah from his, yeah oh and, yeah. and I, I should say like just context wise um, because I am one of those people that bought the well it's right here Joe Joe versus the volcano five corners and Moonstruck screenplays are all shoved together in a book but he writes an introduction mm. to that um, I didn't know this or actually I should say I've known this at various times and re forget it all the time so I just remembered tonight through reading that introduction again. Um, he wrote this right after he got out of a really bad marriage. Um, oh. He wrote this when he had just, uh, he'd got out of a bad marriage. He'd won the Oscar for Moonstruck. His life was finally getting on target. He'd had a pretty shitty childhood and upbringing, pretty violent Irish family. Uh, he went through a lot of stuff. He was disconnected from a lot of his own people. So he was kind of like, Joe Banks was him. He kind of just directly mm -hmm. says it in the thing. Uh, and what he did there too was, uh, he started writing Joe once he had gotten married to somebody who he said is much better for him. Uh, when his career started to get on track, um, the weird January man stuff aside, cause that wasn't really his fault. So it is a terrible movie. Truly never watch it. But, uh, <laughs> then with Joe versus the volcano, um, and again, there is a heartbreaking, uh, tragedy to all this stuff here, but, um, Steven Spielberg read the script, right? And Steven Spielberg said, I want to make this. And uh, think of all the times that Steven Spielberg has done that for people and their careers take off. So he was writing this and shooting this from a place of this is my moment. And he says in the introduction, he said, you know, Mr. You know, Mr. Spielberg was my grain more. He's like, go make the movie that you want. Go do everything you want. Here's all the money. Uh, he didn't have to jump into any kind of volcano that I'm aware of. But he did... Uh, he was on this path. And so he was feeling that vitality. So I think that just is sprinkled and infused throughout the entire screenplay, throughout the magic of the movie. Of course, the heartbreaking part here, which anyone who's familiar with this movie that hasn't seen it is familiar usually with this part, is it was such a complete bomb that he wasn't allowed to make movies for 20 years. And that's that's the part that I'm always like, oh my God, like this movie, <laughs> this movie did that to him. Um, and of course, you know, 
the, the happy ending as he shows up and he's like, oh, hey, I can write a movie called Doubt based on the play that I wrote called Doubt and I can win that way. So he it all worked out okay for him and we won't talk about the last movie he made. But um, it's just heartbreaking that he set it all up as like, this is, this is my chance. The doors are all open for me here. I've got Meg Ryan. I've got Tom Hanks. I've got Steven Spielberg and Amblin producing it. And we're going to have a big opening uh, and it just total disaster savaged people hated it except for roger ebert so that reminds me of one of the central imagery motifs of the film which is the lightning bolt and and the zigging and zagging something you wrote about in your essay and you know one of the things that is so um you know poignant about and resonant with with his life is that you know, what is this lightning bolt path? Well, you could, again and again, it's shown to be a path, right? It's a, it's a crooked path from A to B, but then it zigs and zags all the way. And if you think about like his career, but if of course you think about Joe's journey and all that, it, there, it, there it reflects a similar pattern, which is like, he thought he was on, he thought he was going a straight path to right, whatever, to like, you know, successful fireman of the year <laughs> exactly and and then it just zags all over the place and similarly with 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 um with shanley, shanley you yes know, it's like oscars, oh, oscars whatever shanley's not even like, a lightning bolt it is like, and then it just zags yeah. and wigs and zags and but what i think is so interesting is that if you think of like the actual layout of the lightning bolt like the 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 endpoints are fixed right it's birth and death um and it, the zags are really the interesting bits. That's the parts where life gets fun, where it's like it kind of it's unpredictable. And the movie's like that too. The movie oh says God, very, very early on, it <laughs> totally tells you, even but, it's very odd. <laughs> yeah, but very early on, the movie tells you exactly where it's going to go. It says yes. you're going to go jump into a volcano, and he goes okay, and then at the end he jumps into a volcano. It's yeah. just what's fun about it is all the zags and all the the little journeys that he goes on in between, where a lot of those beats are exactly as Graynamore tells him. It's like, you're going to go get all this money. Yeah. Then you're going to be flown out Live to like a king. LA. No. And then you're going to take a yacht and whatever. And those things all happen. But in between each of those is a bunch of zags. And it's it's in the course of those zags that he falls in love and comes to appreciate you know the vastness of the universe and like all these things where he finds meaning in his life. And anyway, so I just think it's it's such a potent metaphor. And it's cool to see it reflected in Shanley's own life. Yes. In that like his own life is a series of weird (laughs) zags that like he couldn't have predicted. And yet that tell the kind of that give voice to the contours of, and you know, just the specific contours that make his life his own. Right. And when you look, when he looks back on it, he would in some ways be like, yeah, that's what was my life. That's what was important to my life that it zagged in this weird way. We often all do that. And like, you know, we sometimes wish it would have been a different way, but, but we're also like, but that was the way it was for me. So that's my story, you know, and that's important to me. Um, yeah. I just think like very few movies have like a, a central, you know, imagery motif metaphor thing that is that potent. Um, and to see it in this comedy, <laughs> that bombed at the box office is yeah. like kind of and an bombed is like thing. a nice word for it. yeah it was it was a disaster yeah. uh which is unbelievable though i would say you know i told you guys before we started uh, i w- it was part of you know part of the crowd yelling that it was a disaster when i first saw it when i was 11 but i do 
almost entirely blame that on being 11 years old and having no idea this is what life was like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And also like, oh my God, it's big. Where's, where's the fun part? Where, where does he eat the little corn? Where does he, you know, where does he, yeah, where does he no jump pianos. on the trampoline? There's yeah. no, where's the piano steps? Where's Robert Lazio? <laughs> Although, I mean, I feel like the putt putt thing is yeah. like, is just, you know, Hammock or Schlepper is just like, it's like <laughs> FAO shorts for grownups. That's right. True. But well, okay. But they're also, I mean, what did you think at 11 when they do the fishing scene? Cause that scene. Oh, I loved it. Dude, that, that was when was the like, shark finally, shows up. Finally some movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when the shark shows up, I was, I did lose my mind. I was like, that is so, Let's, in some I feel way like we place. should talk just about yeah. the shark so we can just get it out of your system. What, what, what yeah. did you love? Of, what did it well, for I you about the shark? The, the, well, did you like that all, it's a hammerhead? I love that it was a hammerhead. It's got to be a hammerhead. That's and I a, love that the shark choice. is also like screaming and they're both <laughs> screaming at each other. Shark's yeah. like, ah! The shark is also surprised. <laughs> yeah. So good. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, I, it just, I also like that it's like a, it's, this movie has very cartoony vibes, but like that is the most cartoony element of the movie. Yeah, it's a whole sequence. There's no dialogue because the soundtrack is over the top, right? Yeah. And so like, it's just like you, Joe is not catching anything, not catching anything, getting frustrated, not catching, I thought he was going to get like a giant tire. Yeah, that's what I thought too. <laughs> yeah. And also that scene, I love scenes like this that really serve no narrative or plot or, or you know, motivating purpose. Like they're just fun. And, you know, and like, that's the kind of scene that if a producer is, I love scenes basically like this. When a producer sees it, they're like, we don't need to spend $25,000 on this scene. And Chanley's like, no, we're fucking doing this scene. <laughs> the shark's got to come up and scream, get the prosthetic shark in there. I need a shark puppet. Um, and if only you know, I had like, a producer that also made a famous shark movie. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Spielberg was like, "All right, I'm okay, gonna, um, I got some version of that." Uh, but yeah, that's the thing. Is like, I love, I love weird stuff like that. That like, again, it's like a zag. It just adds some. It is, you know, a zag, it adds some zag. character yeah. to it, but it doesn't really do anything. Yeah, and I like that. And um, I love moments like that in movies too. Those, uh, yeah, yes. But I also know um, that there are people that absolutely hate that that moment exists in this movie. <laughs> so wait, really? <laughs> No, That's I mean, just fine. because Again, I do get what it. Do they want from I, cinema? Well, yes. What, do, what are you looking for from cinema, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, okay, you, you've, we're willing to, it's like, uh, I don't know if this reference means anything to you guys, but it's the camel and Ishtar. It's like, okay, we get it. Like just, but you can't push it this far. <laughs> like yeah. you, you, you're mm -hmm. operating barely in the boundaries of reality. And we like that. And we like the fableness and all that kind of stuff. But this like ridiculous looking shark and they're both screaming at each other. It's like that. That breaks some, I don't know, fourth wall that you want to exist. I don't I know. See. I don't have the problem with it, so I can't explain that side of the argument as well. I, I just know some people are like, no, come on, this is silly. And I want it's too silly. Yeah, it's too silly. Yeah. Maybe that's what I should go with. It's yeah, too I, silly. I get that. But it like it breaks the philosophy of the movie. Yeah, like oh, it's absolutely. like it's a stop and smell the flowers moment, yeah. you know? And like for us as film viewers too, like we're just like you know what's fun about cinema? Like yeah. a good, you know, a good like montage <laughs> yeah. or, you know, having like a really nice needle drop and like something yeah. really goofy, just like a fun like visual. Yeah. That's why we're here. To me, I think, and this is something that has been um, sort of, uh, this is an idea that's been embraced by like quote unquote film Twitter recently um, in the last ten, ten, five or five or 10 years, which is like, which is basically like, you know, fuck plot, right? Like, like let's move like, no, who cares? Right. And I think like, I'm glad that that has happened because I really do think like there's a lot of, 
I think I could see why somebody is just like, yeah, but it does. This this scene is both silly and it doesn't do any. It doesn't you know service the plot in any way. But like that's kind of what makes it great, and it adds character. And and there's no reason why everything in a movie needs to be focused on telling a story. Like story is one dimension of a film, but it's not the only one. And all kind there's a, so much more to a film than story. And some of it is texture and mood and the atmosphere and the, you know, and the character and all that. And you know, all that stuff is connected to story in some ways. It can service the story or not, but it's it's its own thing. It can be evaluated on its own. And um, and I think when people embrace that, then a scene like this, you're just like, yeah, this makes perfect sense. Like it's just it it fits the tone of this silly movie, and it and it kind of you know enlivens and underscores some of the themes. Tom Hanks was really known for physical comedy at that point too. I mean, that's a mm-hmm. lot of people don't that's think true. of Tom yeah. Hanks physical comedian now, <laughs> uh, yeah. but that was that was the vibe back then. I mean, yeah. You could just yeah. look at the movies he made in the eighties and be like, "Oh, okay, that makes a little bit more sense that he was." That's true. Yeah, right, yeah. That's a good point. he's like yeah. a slightly toned down Jim Carrey at that point. Almost. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that right? Does that scene come right on the heels too of the soul sick monologue? Yeah, there's that. Jess? I don't know I if that's true. You guys have seen it more recently than me, so it's yeah, it's right around when they have the dinner on the boat, and I then, think they have the dinner on the boat, yeah. and then he's go, he's like night night, and she and he's right. in his little blank blanket, and she's. <laughs> She tells him that she's soul sick. I think so, yeah. And then I feel like it's like a hard cut to like, let's have some fun, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and, they're then both they're, and then healing. the ship is going to go down. So. The ship is going to go yeah. down, yeah. so we might as well. But, but you know, they're he both seems healing. so much happier on the on the luggage raft than he does on the ship. So there's also that. As you strip, that's true. As you strip more and more things. I mean, that's when he's doing the dancing, you know? Yep. Um, and also just a shout out to uh, uh, Shanley. Again, he he wrote all the lyrics to all the all the songs that are not, uh, real songs, you know, so he obviously didn't write 16 tons, but like the cowboy song, he wrote that, mm. uh, marooned without you, which is, uh, not the lyrics aren't used until the very end of the film, but it's that constant theme that, uh, instrumentally runs throughout the whole film. Um, mm. but it, it's a, it's a beautiful little, you know, piece of poetry that he throws in there too, that most people probably don't dive deep into enough to, to care about. But, um, he really was, I mean, not to, you know, uh, move everything into an auteur theory discussion. But yes, this was all him. Like this was his soul up on the screen. Um, I yeah. do think that you really, I was thinking this about 45 minutes ago, so I'm not sure of the context of what we're talking about. Um, but one thing that I really believe deeply about experiencing this film is that you do have, I mean, w- whatever attitudes you see on film Twitter and everywhere else, it, it's not really conducive to experiencing this movie because you have to be open um, you have to say, I'm going to accept wherever this movie takes me. I'm not going to kind of put the frames that I want to put on it. Um, I do think Shanley helps you out a lot, which we haven't talked about mm-hmm. by literally starting the film with a big placard that says once upon a time, there was a guy named mm-hmm. Joe. Um, and I was thinking about what you said earlier, uh, about how stories and, and you didn't say fables, but fables, fairy tales, whatever they exist as conduits to help the medicine go down. Right? Like, there's a lot of really awful stuff that happens in fairy tales, but you accept it because it's a fairy tale. So it feels a little bit out of remove. So there is that slight yeah. kind of, this isn't all true, but it is kind of true. And then that allows whimsy to come into it, but it also allows some darkness. Um, I never say there's anything actually scary in the movie other than the fact that we're all going to die, um, which is pretty, pretty, pretty rough. Thing. Uh, but man, it helps that medicine go down too. Yeah, the tone yeah. of the film is so light, and that is 
allows us to process these complicated yeah. and uh, you know troubling uh, inevitabilities yeah. of our own life. Um, okay, I'm not gonna say I'm not. I was gonna bring in Kierkegaard, but <laughs> okay. I just, I just think, how about we have like a two philosopher max? Uh, no, that's it. We're we're maxed up. But we got so they end up at Heidegger, Wa- right? Yeah, yeah. So, okay. so they end up at Waponi Wu. <laughs> yes, the, the the island, and you know. Famous um, philosopher. Do you do you want to? I mean, should we? I mean, I, I we can lampshade our way around like how you know much we might be mildly offended by what happens uh-huh. in terms of the representation. Oh, but, beyond mildly, yeah. yeah, but pretty offensive. I, I, <laughs> I do, I do think that the film, um, you know, uh, first of all, it's clearly a made up island, so we're not like lampooning an actual culture. But the other thing is that um, the we learn right the movie itself tells us that these that this island is populated by a rome like in part romans with a crew of jews and druids uh and and their culture is a mis- mixture of polynesian celtic hebrew and latin <laughs> so i was just thinking and they love like, their okay. orange soda yeah yeah and who love orange soda <laughs> and and i was thinking like okay so you know you you basically like telegraphed that you're going to like have you know you know, a bunch of like, you know, Jews and, uh, you know, <laughs> you're going to have Nathan Lane and a bunch of feathers and like, yeah. and oh, I like, forgot it was Nathan Lane, and cans. Yeah. 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 And like, you know, and, and to mm-hmm. some extent I'm like, yeah, well, you know what, if that's the world we live in, in this, cause this is clearly not like reality. Yeah. I'm like, all right, that's fine. That's this world. And, and I don't really begrudge that, uh, dimension of the movie. Now, if the movie was like, oh yeah. And then they went to Thailand and then it was like, this, <laughs> I'd be like holy shit, yeah. that's horrible. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's yeah, that's not where they not go. Good. They go to a place which doesn't exist. Um, yeah. I feel like there's some effort to just like keep the comedy as focused on like you know there's the, there's the scene of of Joe getting like whacked in the face with a bunch of right. fish and stuff and like I <laughs> while while Patricia's getting like a mani patty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I feel like they're trying to be like we're we're still we're still joking we're bashing on Joe here you know like yeah. there's an attempt to not um, lamp. But I have a, I have a question much. for you guys as people that just saw the movie this week for the first time. Yeah, because uh, yeah. this is not something that ever comes up in my viewings since I was 11 because I I knew what happened. But did you guys think he was going to jump into the volcano? I, is there any tension there? I mean, I, again, I know what happened, so I don't think about that anymore. But I, I think there definitely was some tension. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the 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 question was how are they going to get out of this? How are they going to resolve this? <laughs> yeah, because I thought maybe he was just going to jump in and die, and you know, but I also thought potentially he was going to walk away. But then I was like, but he is has that a defeats the whole so purpose. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what they did was was quite brilliant. I did not see it coming that. No, we got no. like a big yeah. laugh when yes. they got blown out of the volcano. Yeah, but no, I did not know what was going to happen. Yeah. And I sort of like surrendered myself to not knowing what was going on with this movie in the first act. <laughs> right. Because here's all I knew about Joe versus the volcano. The cover. I had yeah. seen it at Blockbuster. I had seen, I knew it was a blonde Meg Ryan holding on to, to um, Tom Hanks. And I was like, oh, it's one of those. Right. And I never watched yeah. it. And I never had no idea. And you, I, you told me like, we're watching Joe the volcano. And I was like, great. And you see Meg Ryan and she has dark hair and she's Dee Dee. And I, and then like, I 
kept thinking in the New York scene when he's drinking his martini with Blue Moon. This is when he calls Dee Dee. She goes on her adventure with him. Mm. I know because she's in this movie. Oh, you didn't she has, know she's she on was the in cover. it three times? No, oh, I had no idea. Wow, so I was like, amazing. he's going to call her. They're She's going to dye her hair blonde and they're going to go on this adventure. And then they just do hard cut to, to the plane yeah. flying. And I was like, oh. Yeah, Dee Dee's Okay, gone. I don't know no what this Didi. movie's doing. Yeah. 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 And that's, I was like, and that's I have the no thing idea. that, that uh, Roger Ebert hit on in his review and everyone else was trashing it, which I think was very prescient, at, you know, 30 years ago or whatever it was. Um, God, 33 years ago. Um, but he said, I've never, I real, and this is someone who's seen, you know, at this point, he'd been a critic for 20 years. So he'd seen probably two to 3,000 movies at that point. Uh, he's like, I have never seen a movie. I realize that watching movies, I have not seen a movie where I didn't know where it was going to go. I mean, you can read his review. He says it better than that. Um, but he just like, I was constantly not sure what was going to happen in this movie. And that's yeah. such a gift to somebody who watches movies all day and is so used to all the beats and all the patterns and all the, you can see it coming from a mile away. I don't think there's a lot you can see coming from even a few scenes away in this movie. Um, yeah. so for me, that's, you know, that's the magic, uh, for a lot of people, they just are like, I don't want anything to do with whatever this thing is doing. Cause <laughs> it's not hitting the beats I needed to hit. Right. Um, no, it's so fun. I'm good at guessing the movies, ending movies. I yeah. just did that on a horror movie the other day. Right. You did it on prom night. Prom night. Yeah. We hadn't seen, we were watching prom night for the first time and Laura was like, it's the brother. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, really? All right. <laughs> Sorry. Spoiler for yeah. prom night. Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the movie is like from whatever, 1982 yeah. or something. If you get but. two hours into the Joe vs. Volcano podcast, you might get Prom Night spoiled for you. Um, <laughs> Chad, what is so, in the show notes? Yeah, it's yeah. in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> Chad, is there, do you have final, like, con, you know, concluding thoughts on Joe vs. Volcano? Are there other, or I mean, another way to think of it is like, are there other sort of films like this that are important to you <laughs> in this way? Yeah, I mean, so a lot of my identity uh, as a younger person, so like in my early 20s, um, I was getting my film degree. I was working at, uh, thankfully it still exists, one of the few video stores that still exists in the world, Scarecrow Video here in Seattle. Mm. I always mention them any chance I get. Um, but basically everyone who worked there had a film degree. So I was like working on my film degree. I was like low man mm. on, the, on, the, on the totem pole. But um, it was just one of those places that sound like they don't really exist or only exist in like a Quentin Tarantino story or whatever, where they really, people just came in and we just talked about movies and that was like my job and I got paid for it. And I still can't believe I got to do that. Um, I, I wish that that was still part of the culture. I, you know, I know it's not anymore. A lot of it's online. I think you lose a lot of that stuff when it's not in person that you're having these discussions. Um, yeah. But we just talked about movies all the time and I should admit right now, I don't remember what the question you asked me was. What was, what am I answering no, here? This is great. I, my question, <laughs> I mean, no, this is because... You know, I was interested in like whether there were other films oh, similar to Joe yes. the Volcano that 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 had. So I'm you know, that that's what I'm drawn to. That was where I was going with all yeah. that. Thank you. Um, is that I was I'm always really drawn to movies that are doing stuff that I I'm not used to seeing. Um, yeah. I'm usually a pretty vocal proponent or champion of underdog type movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm literally wearing a shirt underneath here for for Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret, which is my other one of my other favorite movies. Mm. Um, which there is a, uh, a long and fascinating story there and plenty of existential and philosophical stuff that, uh, you guys would have a field day with, but it's also three and a half hours long and went through like six years before it could get released. So I just love movies like that where mm -hmm. filmmakers are allowed to make the movie that they want. So this is not, this is not going into whatever blank check used to be, but, um, 
it, it, it's that they're allowed to put some vision of what it means to them to be human on the screen. Yeah. Um, when people bash that for whatever reason, that just gets me even more into it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, so like, I, I know you guys, uh, I listened to enough of the episodes to know that you guys, uh, or at least Justin is a big, uh, proponent of tenant, right? So yeah. I watched, tenet. Oh yeah, we're both tenant. Okay, okay. It's both tenant. Okay. So I <laughs> couldn't even make it through the first time I tried to watch that. Right. So, <laughs> okay. and then, well, but there's more, that's not where the story ends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, then I started hearing that people hated it. Hmm. And some people loved it. And that's for whatever reason. And I would have to psychoanalyze myself for a long time to get there. But there's something about that that I love where uh, someone's pure artistic vision is put up on the screen and there's stuff to figure out. But they, well, okay, not with Christopher Nolan. (laughs) He does make it complicated. Um, (laughs) Where I'm still not sure what happened in Tenet. And, you know, you guys had a, a... Brendan Nodges on the on the show recently, yeah. and he wrote for Brightwell Dark Room about Tenet, and you know, editing his essay and going through it all convinced me to watch it again. And I was like, oh, there is a lot that I actually do like about what this movie's doing. But I had to had to get there, and you know, I hated Joe vs. Volcano, and I eventually loved it. Right. Um, so it, it's something about that that I love uh, that's present with Joe vs. the Volcano. But that's not why I got into it. I mean. Uh, I thought someone was doing a bit on me at the video store when they said Joe versus the volcano is amazing. You got to watch it. Um, and I always mention him cause, uh, he loves when I do. So his name's Ed Ward and we worked together at a video store 25 years ago now. Um, and he's like, you got to watch this. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. I, I'm, I saw this when I was a kid. It's terrible. He's like, no, no. And we had a video, uh, not video screen. We had a monitor in the store that we put video. So we got to pick what movies we wanted to yeah. have on. So he's like, he would put it on and I just, I kept hearing more and more of it. And it's like, okay, what's going on? This is not what I remember. Um, so then I started watching it and then I started obsessively watching it. And then I started, you know, saying, okay, this is going to be my new thing. Um, and, I, and I've just been on that mission for 20 years to get people to take it the way that you guys just took it from an email saying, Hey, this is the movie I want to talk about. Um, so, so thank you guys for being so, so accepting of it and also take it. I, I, there's one level when you can have this big, long philosophical discussion about it. There's another one where you can just put it on and watch a 90 minute movie. That's really going to do a lot of fun stuff for you. Even if you don't think about any other stuff. And I, so fun. I didn't think for the about, record, that's I how think, I feel about tenant. You don't have to understand <laughs> it. Yeah, well, okay, well, I mean, t- yeah. tenant's a little lighter hearted than Joe versus the volcano. <laughs> I mean, it's just a ripping good time. Yeah. No, no, just no. Just hot no. guys doing cool stuff. Chat, both, both points well taken. But you, you know, you're totally right that like Joe versus the volcano, you can just, it's just super fun. Yes. I, look, I have a, I'm pathologically uh, like have to do this with every movie. I just got to break out the content for every movie. But this, I just, it was super fun to watch. The other thing that you said that I think I totally agree with, I am totally behind is my, my favorite movies. The movies that like resonate with me are movies where the director gets to do whatever they want and they just take a huge swing. Yep. And it's the kind of movie that's deeply divisive. And that I love. I, I none the of the one star and five star the one split and five on, star a, split. on a letterbox. Bimodal, bimodal ratings. That's what I want. I don't. <laughs> Justin loves that. I hate. I really do. It's weird. Like a movie that everyone was like, yeah, it was fun. Three stars. That to me is like, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, fine. That's fine. Like, I, I, you know, I can, it's fine, whatever. And I, you know, some of those movies I do enjoy, but really it's the huge swing movies that I feel like, even if I hate them, I'm so intrigued by them 
You know, like even if I'm like, man, this really is painful to watch. It's still like Battlefield Earth is is a nice example of this. Or, you know, Troll 2, the movies that we had our Dear uh, Evan Hansen. You love Dear Dear Evan Hansen. I like Dear Evan Hansen. I couldn't do it. I like was curled up in a ball. (laughs) Well, that's the thing is is they put a 75 year old man in the lead role. I love it. Yeah. And not only that, when he's singing those scenes where he's like, oh, the, it's, it's like so a close. close up on it's his face so close. and yeah, you yeah. can see his five o'clock yeah, shadow. It's, it's also just like, you're like, that's why we watch, we watch musicals like at a great distance. Yeah, with watching makeup. people sing like this is very uncomfortable. So anyway, but, <laughs> but yeah, so but, like I saw Magnolia like four times in the theater at the same yeah. time in, in 1999 too. So I mean like, yeah. yeah, I love the big swings. I love go for it. Have a musical scene, have frogs rain from the sky. I'm there. Hell yeah. So. Um, thanks so much, Chad, for being Absolutely, here. Absolutely, guys. Was this was great. Wonderful. So everyone should read Brightwall Dark Room, listen to the Brightwall Dark Room podcast. Where, I mean, what's the, give us this, like the social stuff so that everyone can go and find their way there. Yeah. I mean, the social stuff's in flux because, you know, the, the, uh, it's hard when the, the platform that you use to kind of build everything that mm-hmm. got you. Some amount of recognition in the world is also now just like the worst thing on earth. And you just don't know how to get out of that trap. Um, So we are on letter moniker, which I will not call by its uh, letter, whatever it is now. Um, It's letter moniker uh, at BWDR. Um, That's still probably the most common place to find us though we are looking for alternatives every day uh we're on blue sky i don't know how to say all it's too long to know what it is but bwds are uh, bwdr is in there uh if you search brightwell dark room on blue sky you'll find us pretty quick <laughs> um we got off facebook a couple years ago because of the problems with facebook uh yeah i guess we, we we do a lot uh thankfully we've we've been around a long we've been around long enough at this yeah. point where we don't need to rely you guys on have social Patreon media too, right? happened a few years ago, we'd have been really screwed. So um, basically read the site. We do have a Patreon. Yeah, that used to uh, be a, a much bigger thing too. I don't know if you guys have seen their new logo. Okay. <laughs> but if you're looking uh, if you're looking for some laughs, you should look at what their new logo is because it's <laughs> really like... Show notes. I'm not even going to spoil it. So um, our main, our the main way to support us in any way is honestly to to read the site, um, and then just subscribe. Like it used to be a hard sell to say, yeah. "Hey, it's mm-hmm. five dollars a month," but like most people are paying like eight dollars a month for like twenty Substacks. So I feel like we put out more content than that. Um, we certainly do it. Uh, yeah, with a lot of love. You know, there's a lot of human humanness to it. That's always been uh, central to that. And if we ever lose that, I think that that I'll shut it down. So, um, yeah, yeah read bright wall dark room great stuff and uh in, in particular read the brendan hodges essay because everyone who listens to this show loves tenet so you should read the brendan hodges tenet essay on bright that's dark a great room. essay yeah and then uh listen to the bright wall dark room podcast which is great um and you'll hear who so who are your co-hosts by the way uh it's just one is veronica fitzpatrick who is uh 100 times smarter than me so i love listening to her i basically do the show each month so that i can listen to what she thinks about movies so um she's great uh she's a postdoctoral uh i i don't know all the nomenclature around this stuff but at brown university teaches a lot of film classes if uh somehow you end up going to brown um it's a wonderful uh i just her syllabi sound fantastic every single time she talks cool. about them uh, and she's also a fantastic writer too. So 
Um, we host that together. Uh, I a little bit of serendipity as I looked on uh, on your guys' website today. Um, whoever you're having on to record your next episode with is also who we're having on. That's right. Uh, I'm going to shout that out right now. Mr. Blake. Mr. Mr. Blake Uh, Howard. What are you recording with Blake? Can you say it? Yes. Um, We are narrowing it down. We do a thing every... It just sounds funny to say out loud. Every Christmas we do Christmas, which we Wait, pick a Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so we did Eyes Wide Shut a couple of years ago. Uh, we did we did yeah we did Vanilla Sky. So we we're not we're not going after like the main stuff. Um, so Bla- it is on Blake's plate currently. We will see how this resolves. It can be a cliffhanger for you guys. Um, we're not sure he will be talking about a Tom Cruise movie on our show. Um, but a a bona fide classic on your show. So. Yes. So okay. So I uh, I now now you just set me up to do the uh, socials for us. So we are at Cow's Pod on Twitter. You can find us on the web at cowspod.com. And by the way, we have a Gmail account. It's had this for a while. I'm going to advertise it now in case people want to write to us. Reach out to us at cowspod at gmail.com. In two weeks. We'll be discussing with Blake, the aforementioned Blake Howard of One Heat Minute Productions. We'll be discussing. Blake's one of Blake's maybe Blake's favorite if not I think it's his favorite film LA, it's not heat no. is it I don't know I think it's LA Confidential it's, yeah. okay yeah I'm so, so excited we'll get confirmation of this when we record with Blake in a few days and, okay. uh, but yeah he, I think he I think LA Confidential is his favorite film if you've ever spent any time talking with him in real life in real time I mean it's it's just weird. I know I've yeah, never met Blake there, in real life there, but. there are few, I mean he's a, a human I don't even know what the word is He's just, there's no one I've ever met who came away from a conversation with him saying like, well, that sucked. No, definitely <laughs> so. not. Yeah, that seems right. <laughs> Have we just done we've Ali did, we've, with We've him? done Ali with, with Blake, so. Oh, you've, uh, oh, because you already talked about yeah. yeah. Right, because we did Collateral yeah, with his and co-host. He yeah, with Katie. Yeah, with Katie, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, Katie. We had Katie on yep. a few episodes ago, too. So we're, we're swimming in it's similar seas. It's seas. great. It's, this is the world. Yeah. This is the world of like yeah. online film discussion. And, you know, we're just happy to be. Sort it's of a very a nice small one. part of this massive. Oh, you space, guys are great. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I was listening to the show before, but definitely ramped it up in the last few weeks. And it's great. You guys do a fantastic show. Thank you so much, Chad. And so, honor to be thank here. Thank you, you so very much. much for being here. And thanks to the listeners. So join us in two weeks for LA Confidential. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.